Hi, I'm Brian. And I'm John. And we're hosting the Pioneer Park Podcast, where we bring you in-depth conversations with some of the most innovative and forward-thinking creators, technologists, and intellectuals. We're here to share our passion for exploring the cutting edge of creativity and technology. And we're excited to bring you along on the journey. Tune in for thought-provoking conversations with some of the brightest lights in Silicon Valley and beyond. Okay, so we have with us today Avi Fine. Avi is the founder of Mebo, which is a platform for building personalized chatbots. Prior to that, he was a member at South Park Commons and previously worked at Neva and YouTube and Google. Avi, welcome to Pioneer Park. Thank you. Great to be here. <laughs> yeah, welcome. Good to see you. So we've been having some conversations prior to this, which I think at some point we all realized, oh, we should probably turn on the microphones just so we can begin to capture some of this. <laughs> and I think we were just on the con topic of talking about how to master chat and really like some of the challenges of chat. So first, can you just tell us a little bit about Mebo? Sure. So Mebo is a platform where we build chat bots out of creators of various topics. We look for people who are usually like experts in a certain thing and really have proactively shared their knowledge. And then on the other side, there's people who trust them and want to connect with them to get almost like one-on-one -on -one advice for recommendations, for questions that they may have, where so much we're going to, I would say, Instagram and TikTok and YouTube nowadays as being the place that we want to get knowledge out of and we want to get information from. But those are still static and a distant in many ways where they're not relatable to you. They can answer really connect with things that you're interested in. And we want to break down those barriers and really use chat as an interface to make it interactable such that you can have conversation and go into the depths of both you and how it connects to that person and their knowledge and their content as well. Cool. So I guess something that's really top of mind, I think for a lot of people right now is ChatGPT. Differentiate. Tell us how Mebo is different than just run of the mill vanilla ChatGPT. Yeah. It's interesting because we started working on this before ChatGPT even came out. But <laughs> Very I, hipster of you. Yeah, yeah. But I would say the foundational ideas and principles actually cut across even the post-ChatGPT world. And that one, what we wanted to do was break apart knowledge to not have it be a monolith anymore. And if you looked at what a lot of people experienced with the web and the internet today through products like Google and now ChatGPT, it's relatively generic. You get the same answer independent of who you are. Like if you do a Google search, if you do a chat GPT, like Q&A, we're all going to get the same thing back. And our belief is that it's a much more delightful and not only that, but like trustful experience when you can blow that up and go into the distribution of different perspectives and different niches of knowledge where someone's going to have a slightly different take than person A versus person B on a whole slew of things. And so for us, it's how do you take a some of the technology that ChatGPT is good, but apply it to the diversity of human perspectives and knowledge in many ways. I think the second part that we build on that's beyond ChatGPT is playing with the idea of how do you use the technology to extend people versus replace them. And a lot of what people talk about in AI now is like these virtual assistants, which are just supplicants of like humans where it's, like, oh yeah, we've trained on a million of you. And now this can do what all million of you can do. Like you should just use this one like AI bot. And that's true for art. It's true for now ChatGPT and knowledge of like, why would you talk to anyone else but ChatGPT and knows the entire internet. And I think what goes unsaid in those things is that when you do that, you lose the integrity of in the nuance of all those individual people and all the individual relationships and the trust even that you may have in that. And it becomes 
not to go back to the same idea, but this like monolith of just the average across everything. And what we want to lean into is the individual and is like the personal and it is the idea that we are all unique in our way and like how can it how can AI extend us to give us superpowers versus just act as like a replacement of us all. So when you talk about that uniqueness, certainly from a in the first comment you were saying, oh, unlike ChatGPT, we want to be really personalized. How are you able to achieve that? I think it starts with people. <laughs> and I like when we said before what Mebo is like our building block, our atomic unit was an individual creator, was it as someone on YouTube, and really it's actually cutting across these, it's like the person as they're represented on YouTube, TikTok, Instagram, and even their website, like that is like your identity. And so we started with the identity as being the atomic unit, and then build up from that. And the philosophy behind that was that you can capture their unique perspective and their, you're their unique point of view and then make that accessible and shareable with the world. And by doing that, you can maintain this like boundary so that it's no longer like the, the aggregation of them plus 10 others who are like them. And then you actually lose the texture and you lose the nuances of like their experience of the world. And you also then from the other side as a user, know who you're talking with and you can have a trusted relationship versus being like, you have to take this leap of faith with ChatGPT that what they're saying to you is the authoritative truth of the internet. We're like, we're in a post-truth world. What is the truth of the internet? Yeah, it brings to attention some of the interesting issues. A lot of the complaints about ChatGPT and related products have been that they hallucinate, that the things that they spout so confidently aren't facts, which I think has been a warning sign for a lot of people. But it is also true that the perspective of an individual creator is also not necessarily a fact. So I'm curious to hear your perspective on two angles. One is the uh, ability to take a creator's perspective and actually represent that faithfully. Like, how do you ground your technology in the actual perspective of creators? And how do you feel about creators being obligated to be truthful, for instance? Fake news, like what, what's the, what are the risks or maybe down the line for how Mebo could be a voice of people who you don't necessarily want to expand their voice? Yeah. I'll go in reverse order because I think the first question is almost like the harder question than the second one, at least for us. On the second one, and this connects with the idea of like, how do you not think of the world as being a generic monolith of information that we all trust? And that we're not trying to give you an opinion around what is fact and what is not fact in the world. By virtue of talking with an individual, you are establishing that you trust them, or at least like you, like, like they're their source of knowledge and they're the source of information, not us. And having worked in this space before, at least at like Neva and seeing some of these dynamics and that one of the drawbacks of the of those types of products is that trust is inferred into the brand such that I trust the first result on Google because Google said it's the first result. And the actual sourcing of the individual things that like go into it start to fade away and not matter anymore. And then Google becomes responsible for moderating the internet. And then Twitter becomes responsible for moderating Twitter. And then Instagram becomes responsible for moderating those things because trust flows up into the brand versus like staying down into the individual. And they all say, oh, that's what we, we don't want to have this responsibility, but they design the products and they build the products to, because they like become the aggregation point and become the, they become the center point to do that. And for us, I think it is about not meddling too much into those worlds and letting the 
individual points of view, the individual facts still sit where they like lay. Like we're not going to strip it out like of someone's chatbot just because we may disagree with it because you on the other side are an adult and like we trust that you will be able to form your own point of view on whether you can have that trust with that person or not. And that's the complexity of life and I think the, the reality of it. On the first part of how do you actually do a good job of this? That's like the long arc of technology. <laughs> and I don't want to claim that after three or four months, we've solved some massive problem and be like, oh, guys, like this is done. Like we, we've done it here. What I can say that we lean into and we think give us tailwinds to be able to tackle this. Uh, number one is that we come from a background in search. And what that means is that we spend a lot more time and energy and effort into retrieval as being like an important problem and understanding what are the facts or what are the opinions or what are the things that this person has said and how do we like make sure we're relying on that and what that does is it gives you a boundary in terms of the ai and what it like when you are generating a response or when you are trying to yeah like generate like leverage that you can know a priori how far you may be deviating from what that person has said before so imagine like when it comes in you have now gpt3 where you give it a prompt and when you're assembling that prompt, you could say, well, this person has never said anything about this topic before, or like they've said something 20% about this topic, 80% about this topic, 70% about this topic. You can at least now have like thresholds to say they have not talked enough about this to really give a response and just be like, I'm sorry, I can't answer your question, for example. And that's like a very simplistic, I think, approach to it. But in concept, I think once you have a source domain that is like boundary and sense on it, you can apply some of these techniques to not let the model hallucinate or at least know when you're hallucinating more. I do want to double click on something here around these recommendations because you worked previously at Google, YouTube, and Neva. And one thing that I've always found, so these platforms do end up becoming editorial. And I've actually always found that YouTube seems to have the most wholesome recommendations relative to other platforms. I find that like when I get recommended things on YouTube, they're often educational or interesting and relevant to my interests, but not in a perverse way. Whereas say TikTok is clearly just trying to addict me to their platform, which is fun, but doesn't necessarily feel as wholesome. Why is that? Or perhaps how could that differentiated experience be created? Yeah, no, I love this question and I love YouTube and I feel the same way. I think that's like definitely a very true observation with insight into it. If I had to speculate on the potential reasons for it, I would guess it relates to both the product definition of long form video itself and then also monetization and how those relate to why this like may be manifestation of it. One is that I think more nutritious edu educational content is hard to make bite size and it is better in like a long form format. And I would also say, I would also guess intuitively that the people who want that type of content don't want it to be like overly reductive and to be like this like hot take TikTok type of thing where it's no they're interested in going deep and actually like learning about this thing which is not well suited to those short form bite-sized types of like platforms and so I think there's just a natural product definition that causes more of those things to flow into YouTube where it's a better fit for both the audience who are like want to engage with it and for the content itself in many ways. I think the second reason for monetization is that outside of YouTube, it's actually very hard to make a living generating content on TikTok or Instagram. They're just not the same type of monetization engine for creators as like YouTube is. That's largely related to both YouTube's an amazing 
monetization engine of like they can make billions and billions of dollars of advertising, but they also share all of that with these creators. And if you take the power of Google's advertising machine and then you give 50% of that, not exactly, but roughly 50% of that out to creators, you're sharing a lot of wealth. And they have, they show more wealth with creators than any other platform by far. What that also means is some of these things which are less popular and less like mainstream, like educational, informational things are, can survive and make a living on YouTube where they really can on TikTok or Instagram. If you are like an infotainer, nutritious content creator, you really aren't gonna make a living on TikTok or Instagram. You'll probably do it for a few months and then realize how hard it is and how much it's just like running up Mount Everest effectively and probably burn out and not do it and fade away. We're on YouTube. You can find your niche and you can find that audience because of the platform and then be able to make money that comes back to you on it to reinvest and actually have a content business that like comes out of it. What I, what allows for YouTube to be that platform in a way that Instagram is not? Both of them have enormously high user counts. I would imagine that the kind of number of crevices and interests that one can fall into are just as deep on all of these platforms. What do you think makes YouTube distinct? In terms of its monetization, you mean, or if it's... Well, I guess its ability, yeah. One thing, it sounds like one of the biggest differentiators is the ability to make a living. Yeah. What incentivizes YouTube to keep that open? Because it sounds like if they wanted to squeeze artists, they could, but they're choosing not to. Is that motivated in the core leadership of YouTube, or is that oh, something abso else? Absolutely. There's... YouTube caught on to this far earlier to me than other products did, in that content creators are your supply of unique differentiated content and also then the relationships that people are coming back for like more and more onto it and if you want to have a healthy marketplace which these products are all ultimately marketplaces where like content creators are coming in as your supply and you users are there to consume it you need to make sure that your suppliers are able to reinvest into their businesses to make it better and are able to increase the quality of their content and their output over time. You don't want to actually squeeze your suppliers so much that you're effectively selling like trinkets that are low value, just like commodities like, like crap effectively versus able to build up into the value chain and offer better and better things. And I think there is a deep insight that YouTube had there. We want to make sure that our supply gets better over time. We want to offer a higher and higher quality product, which means we can't squeeze margin out of our content creators and keep it all for ourselves. Because what you'll do is you'll undermine yourself in the long term. And I think that was in many ways an early insight of the partnership program. And it's something that has allowed it to thrive and, and achieve a lot of this, these goals. A good note for us, John. <laughs> yeah, very much. Yeah. How do you think this is going to end up playing out for Amoeba? The idea of like revenue or monetization yeah. or of the like, how do the dynamics of like education or like advice or information then connect into Ebo and like chatbots? Well, I think you listed out essentially two reasons why yeah. YouTube might have more kind of nutritious recommendations. And I think the first one was a medium is the message type yep. of thing. Like, oh, just YouTube medium uh, is just suited to high investment yeah. content. Yeah. Uh, and then the second one was around essentially the the incentives of the creators. Yeah. So as you, as Mebo expands out, what, what's going to be the character of Mebo and how are those two elements going to play out? Yeah, I think it's no surprise that when we talked, when I talked about before around where we're starting is in the more of like expert and advice area. And the reason is that, uh, what you say medium is the message, right? Yeah. And that we got really excited by 
chatbots and chat agent conversations in this context because it allows you to go into the nuances and into the one-on-one -on -one and the personal. And that is like where the medium shines of chat. And I would actually like then juxtapose this against Ch chat GPT where it does really bad. It says a chatbot. <laughs> it's actually not an if you like were to compare a conversation you would have with someone where you would give it the same input or the same prompt as you give to chat GPT that's not how a person would respond to you <laughs> no it, it, it's not it's a chatbot only in the sense that you can have follow-ups that like iteratively build on it to have this idea of like memory which Google does like is doing in the background but doesn't explicitly do in the product interface but I think what is really exciting about chat and about dialogue, which we were talking before, is in the back and forth. And it is in the nuance and the details to say, hey, Brian, tell me specifically like what you've learned here, what you've done so far, and how can I apply my specific knowledge into that? And to me, the medium of chat is very much like about you both working together to strive to those goals. Or, and it could even be just getting to know each other better as well. I think on monetization, we're a typical startup of build an engagement and make, build a successful engaging thing first and then monetize it. I would say in the spirit of the product and of the company and the spirit of me, if we can monetize, oh yeah, we're sharing that with creators. We're sharing that with people on the other end because yeah. of the exact same reasons that I said and just in the fundamental values that these are the people who are the authors, are the creators and the ones who are the thriving suppliers of the product. Like in me, like I see them as like the blood of these products. and. We haven't talked about Neva yet, but even one of the reasons I went to Neva was feeling that products like Google don't value the web and they don't value the like the, the free publishing that everyone gives them as a supply of the web. And they are extractive at the end of the day and they act as like a gatekeeper and a toll really for discovery and for connecting with those people. And it just was contrary to what to me felt like sustainable equitable ecosystems that have like fairness and have the idea of rewarding people for good content built into them. We're now going through this massive wave of interest in generative AI. It's a huge sort of hype cycle. We're talking about products that can be built off of this and products that can be based on this, basically grounded chat that represents somebody. Where do you think this current wave is overhyped? Where is it overpromising? And where do you think there's potential to where it's, oh, there's an unexplored direction in this way? You mean specifically within chat? Within specifically like within, let's say, t generative text. I would say it's most at risk of being overhyped in the deep domain use cases. And we were talking about this before. I think there is a risk that it's overhyped in like B2B where everyone wants to flock into because typically B2B businesses are like money making things that investors love and other people love and stuff like that. The risks there are the expectations of B2B are really into nuance and getting down into a deep domain depth of someone's individual business and a lot of things that are hard to capture in the digital world even. Of, oh, Lucy talked to Mike about Z, like, and how does this AI bot not know about that? And you're like, there's not really a good record of that anywhere. And if there is, it's like very partial and hard to even connect with what you're expecting out of it. And I would say in the workplace, people I think will have different expectations and those ex like of these AI agents and those expectations will be hard to live up to given the information available. And I think the difficulty in accessing even all of that information in different warehouses and places that it lives and the unstructured ways in the messy world that like a business is. 
And I think that's actually less true in consumer. I think that you have far lower consumer expectations actually of these things and like what they can do. And you have far more information available that will help people with the 80 or 90% of the use cases that they will actually have in practice. So it's more well set up, I think, than people probably give it credit for. Where do I, where I would say it's where things are underhyped? I guess consumer, I touched on that one a little bit. Although ChatGPT is consumer. What? Chat, Chat. Yeah, yeah. ChatGPT is, is everything. Yeah, yeah. I wouldn't really, yeah, I guess it's, it is consumer, but it's like you've seen it most in like the B2B use like takeoff. Well, I feel That's like it's like my impression of it of like people see it applied at their job or it applied as a student, which is almost like a B2B use case if you look at it anyway. Yeah, it's interesting. I don't think you're going to ChatGPT to ask it what to wear out to a party tonight or something like that or like what to do this weekend or those I, classic like consumery types of things. I have used it to plan a party. Yeah. Oh yeah, you did like <laughs> yeah. you did have it. Yeah. I'd be curious on how it worked for that. I think ChatGPT is very good at generating generic checklists. Yeah. And <laughs> so you got a checklist of what to do for your party. And that sounds trivial, but it's really not in some way. I think there's the Atul Gawande checklist manifesto, et cetera. You know, when you're doing something moderately complicated, it can be easy to miss something important. And if you just have the source that can just generate your checklist, then maybe you would have just generated the same checklist on your own, but you can double check it against theirs and you can just say, oh, did I miss anything? Yeah, a generative work, like I can imagine having it generate a workout for me. And like that being something like, oh, okay, that's reasonable. I think sure. good goal yeah. for the day. So I think that, but those are such good places to juxtapose against because I, the magic to me that's like super exciting to work towards is you're planning a party and you're like, I want this party to be special. I want something different. I want like an idea that is not the generic. I don't know that ChatGPT will be able to get that to you. And a friend will. Mm, yeah. Like, I, I think like chat, if you say, hey, ChatGPT, give me like special ideas for my party. I still think it'll like spit out something to you, but I think you'll still kind of be like, eh, I don't know. None of those really hit the mark with me. And same thing yeah. for like an exercise routine. Like it'll give you an exercise routine. My guess is you're on the other side being like, this doesn't really hit the mark with me. And I, and there's a, there's a, there's a, there's something to bridge that gap there. And I think AI can bridge that gap. And I think that like, we have the capability to do it. And I think that's, there's like an underhyped goodness and I can't articulate yeah. or even know exactly what there is there, but I'm like, I know the tech is there and I know the information yeah. is there. And that bridge I think is through retrieval. It's through retrieval, but it's through like, it's through people and it's through mm. nuance. And it's through the idea of like, how do I get to know you, Brian and you, John? And like, how do I use like the unique things about you and the unique things about the people that you like to talk with to give you something more special for you? It is interesting. So I feel like say mid journey has done a good job making their platform produce art that people are just more into. Do you feel like that's just, oh, they just exercise editorial control and that maybe there'll be like a dozen different mid journeys with different aesthetics or something? or somewhat generic ways to just make chat more interesting. I think there are definitely more generic ways to make chat more yeah. interesting. That now even with like hyperparameters yeah. of EPT3, if you can change the temperature and like, you know, yeah. get back very well, like <laughs> random and interesting are not synonyms. More or less spicy. These are like on yeah, yeah. like, the spectrum, but like yeah, yeah. They, they definitely will have like impact on like the end user experience for people. Mm -hmm. So you can do these things. I, yeah. one thing I wrestle with a lot is this middle ground place where I talk a lot about individuals and creators and identity, and then you have ChatGPT, which is like the monolith on the other end, and there's an absolute middle ground where you're like, well, what if you take a basket 
of people. What if you take 10 artists, 10 creators, 10 this, and then you build like an AI agent out of that kind of like their nearest neighbor to each other, or maybe mm -hmm. they have some kind of value in like this like mass together, yep. and that gives you like an interesting output. Yep. I think it's a really cool exercise to do and think what are the implications of that and what would be like the end user experience. And I hope that's something we can play around with, but I, I don't know, but that's certainly, I think some things that you could have in like a mid journey type world where it's, oh, there's some level of curation that like you do in the back yep. end to say, Hey, you know, what really makes great art for this area is to do these 10 things. And like, mm -hmm. we're going to put those things, those 10 things together. And that'll actually move us further down the spectrum from the generic into like where we are on the other end, which is like, yep. everyone has their own special kind of point of view. One of the dynamics I think that's interesting is just how bland ChatGPT is, and that's done intentionally. It's by it's a very unopinionated, intentionally politically neutral, or driven to be politically neutral. And any sort of risque content it shies away from, any sort of attempts to basically address preemptively the AI safety concerns. Yeah. But the result, I think, is a consumer experience that lacks luster in a lot of domains, that lacks color, that yeah. may not be appropriate for a lot of purposes. Yeah, it, it's boring. <laughs> so what do you think about the, how do we confront the potential AI risk community yeah. when trying to build things that are potentially more exciting, more spicy, more interesting? You said you take risk. You, you cannot innovate with fear. Like you cannot constantly be worried about the downside risks of something in order to unexplore the upside potential of it. So let and, me throw you a curveball there. Right. Let's say one of your creators is a bomb manufacturer. Yeah. And somebody wants to come in, they're like, oh, like, I really want to know, like, I, what are the household ingredients I can use to make a bomb? Yeah. This guy's content, maybe, I guess you're somewhat limited by the content you're consuming. You're trusting that those sources will be, will be doing a lot of the sort of censorship and maintenance of content control. Yeah. But hypothetically, that person could have a private blog where they aggregate these things. Yeah. Just, that just like driving the nail home here. Yeah. What about that case? I'll actually push back on it in that I think that case is less exemplary because you don't do anything that's going to break the law or cause like ex extreme outcomes like that, like where you can have people end up in harm or death or things like that. And those are actually very easy policing types of things where it's, yeah, we like, we're not going to do things that like break the law or enable the people to like, easily break the law. There's a lot of other like nuanced stuff in between there of misogyny and hate and just like meanness that I think is harder mm -hmm. to reconcile with. But I think that case at least is like more straightforward. So what do you think the solution is for something like misogyny or hate speech and things like that? Where there are people, certainly on YouTube, where they've devoted their platforms to assholes, right? And I totally understand the sensitivity or the conservativeness of OpenAI and companies like this that yeah. are attempting not to build something that kind of perpetuates that. Yeah. What's the, I guess, what would be your guide to the appropriate boundary? I think most of the first order risk is in like the discovery experience with this type of thing where you get into like recommendations of people and I think for where we are right now that's less something we have to worry about where it's oh what happens if we like promote like a, a hateful chatbot that like then breeds more hate in the world that's just not a problem that we're going to face for the next like year probably at least can there be those that exist and are created or are powered on it yeah yeah and I think that that is a but potential downside of opening up to more diversity of perspectives, to more free speech, to more of what is humanity. And the ultimate criticism of things like ChatGPT or of Google or of these like behemoths is that in the fear of these issues, 
they water down humanity and they like water down to like very basic like basic levels and make us all become more like like not us all to become more similar but basically like our experiences to become more similar on those products and so you end up with they come become further and further from what the world actually is to become like the own bubble where it's oh this is like the culture of tiktok or this is the culture of twitter and they don't represent maybe the culture of the world as much and so i think it's just interesting to take a risk and let those things flourish and open up and see where they go and then deal with the issues that come out of it as they arise one thing that i love about the angle that you're coming at mebo from is your background because yeah. you were at google for a long time and youtube and then nevo was founded by people that were sick of google and and now you're going in yet another direction maybe it's one interesting thing could be the level set on the state of Google. So I think we've had this conversation at one point, but what is Google's moat? They have multiple moats that are incredibly powerful. The first one is distribution. And that one of the hardest problems for any company, any startup, especially in the consumer space, is just distribution. How do you like easily reach your end customer at scale for like very efficiently and things like that? And the most effective way oftentimes to do that is to be pre-installed slash the default of something that already has distribution. And Google very early on was the default for Safari. And then they very smartly took advantage of the wave of mobile and now own 50% market share for Android, where they are the default through very like many OEM agreements as a, the search provider. And they very smartly have Chrome, where they are the default for it and able to use their own browser as like their distribution. And overcoming that alone is a very tall, hard hill to climb and is very independent of the quality of your product. Like you could build something that is 20%, 30%, 50% better than Google. You won't overcome the distribution gap there as a startup. You really need to be 10x or have some smart, unique angle around like why you can penetrate the market in a way that someone hasn't thought of before. But beyond that, from a product standpoint and technical, if you actually want to go rebuild Google and you think you can solve distribution, there's two other modes that they have. One is one is slowly getting torn down, which is, I'll actually end on that one, but the second one is the crawl of the web. They have the entire web content, but not only that, but they have it annotated with structured information about everything there. So they can say, oh, this web page is talking about these people, this location, these topics. Imagine if you had that for anything, where you could just run a query and say, hey, find me all of the web pages that are about this place or about this person or about yeah. this idea. That's incredibly, you can't do that today. Yeah. There are thousands of millions yeah. of businesses spend millions of dollars crawling the web and trying to extract information out of it in order yeah. to create a sliver of what they have yeah. as just like a baseline default for retrieval and for other fancier feature building. And then the third one, which is eroding now, um, has been their feedback loop in terms of like ranking and that they have query click pairs. So you know that when people do this search that they will click this result in this website and that is the most relevant website to them, which can act as a feedback loop into ranking for you and also is very virtuous and just you can effectively leverage that for things like memorization where it's just, oh, I've seen this query a million times. So like the next time I see it, not only do I not even need to like do retrieval anymore because like I know exactly what someone's going to click on, but I can now even do fancier things because I understand a lot more in depth than that. I've known that these words are associated with these like pages and these topics and things. So I can yeah. build an AI system on that as well. 
I think on that one, that's where we're seeing the biggest kind of disruption with embeddings for relevance and ranking, for example, and also with LLMs, which have in many ways like intent understanding and have content and knowledge baked into them that you don't need to necessarily go rank the world's web to be able to get the answer out of it. I was actually curious about your take on embeddings. So one kind of thing that I've had to explain to people about embeddings is that they are they represent the semantic content of a document. And something that's magical about Google that's not included in those embeddings is that uh, intent isn't the same as semantic similarity. But it sounds like, I guess, do you think, are you an optimist about embeddings? Will they end up actually like enabling that kind of intent discovery? I'm absolutely an optimist about mm-hmm. embeddings. And I also think that like embeddings are a reflection of what they've been trained on, like everything else in AI, right? And so if you train a bunch of embeddings on Google's data, if you had Google's data, they'd be really good for those use cases. It would be really good at intent understanding. Like when I say these three words, I know that these three words are probably about this thing or these like these sets of things. And that's the biggest issue. And that I think people naively see them as this sledgehammer where it's, oh, open AI's embeddings. That's amazing. Like I can just use those. And you're like, no, it really matters what use, like what they've been trained on for your use case. And if they haven't been trained on what you're trying to use them for, they're not going to be very good for what you're trying to use them for. And so I'm definitely bullish uh, of them because I think what is, magical about embeddings and i think what is magical in general about where we are in ai and deep learning is you can move into the smearing and i go a lot and we talk a lot about like nuance and details and like that like the world is complex information is complex everything is like much more nuanced than we give appreciation for words are reductive symbols of that complexity and uh the minute you can put them into a much more complex like embedding space or latent space, you're able to com- capture much more complex associations and ideas that are more reflective of reality. And so I think that that and continued investment in that is like a breakthrough thing, but they're not gonna be like the, I turn on embeddings and suddenly I have a search engine type of thing. How can small businesses take advantage of embeddings, which seem to be a technology that really is requires first that you have a data set that describes that intent, that describes that purpose, purpose-built use case? Yeah, I think anyone who's like starting to mess, it's like starting to play with them, you continue to use like a hybrid system. Even be, like the biggest tech companies still use hybrid systems where they're doing keyword-based retrieval in addition to embedding-based retrieval. Like they're not a mutually exclusive thing and it's not like one is a drop, like embeddings are a drop-in replacement for some of these issues, I would say. And so if you're going to add them in, I would, you want to add them in and then be able to at least start retrieving them alongside. And then you can even do evals and say, okay, is this actually doing a good job and augmenting what we're already able to get with keywords? Are we getting what is like in search world, like recall, like we're getting things that we never knew we were retrieving on before that are related because they're semantically similar to at least assess the quality of your embedding. The second thing I would then say based on what that assessment looks like for things that are out of the box. And a lot of the things if you're getting into it is just go do research to choose the right embedding. What's the right model to generate your embeddings from? That's most similar to your use case. You can then try to potentially take a swack at either fine tuning or even like building your own based on your own like data. But I would say that's like an extra level and really is more dependent upon you getting extreme value out of that capability. And it's like worth the time and investment to do it because that's not even an easy thing in itself to, to go down that path. Actually, maybe one more question about Google before we get into Neva. But it seems like Google should be the big winners here. They have this amazing web crawl. They invented the transformer. 
And because as you were saying, oh, a model trained on Google's data would have the most amazing embeddings for intent ever. Uh, it seems like Google probably should or, or probably actually does have that. Are they going to be able to exploit those advantages? Or if not, why? The problem Google and Bing have is when you are the monolith of information, the expectations for users are unbounded. And technology is not at that point yet. I don't care how good your data is. I don't care how good your AI is. Like we've all seen the fail cases of Bing. We've all seen the fail cases of these, of ChatGPT still and like these other things, especially when you're talking more about facts and knowledge. And when you take that, that, that product concept of being like, this is just a universal chatbot that like has all of the world's knowledge into it that you can trust. And then you put that into a corporation which has a trillion dollars on the line that is not set up for success. That is because the amount of risk that you have in revenue that is introduced by this vector, mm -hmm. which is uncontrollable and isn't ready for prime time, makes it very hard for you to actually take advantage of the wave. Mm -hmm. It is said another way, it is the innovator's dilemma. Mm -hmm. You like they are at the crossroads of the innovator's dilemma where the risk for them of innovating is so high that it's hard for them to even get started there. And like the closest they can do is do very quiet behind the scenes things. But at the same time, they're getting just lambasted in the PR sphere for not doing the big things. And you're like, the tech isn't there. Like the people who can take risk and the people who can take the list didn't produce a good output are the startups, are the people who have nothing on the line. I don't have a trillion dollars to lose. I like people can go and have a terrible experience with any chatbot and it's really painful for me, but it's not going to put an entire company at stake. And I think Google faces that type of dilemma in practice as one. The second thing I would say outside of that, they have an absolute leg up from all the technology data, all those other things side chat experiences are not, chat experiences are not the same. It is not a drop-in replacement. People's query behavior, super ambiguous. It is very generic itself. Google has actually taught you to use few and fewer words over time. You're less expressive in search than you once were a decade ago. And the reason is because they've gotten so good at intent understanding where it's like, hey, when you put these two words in, 70% of the time, you probably mean this. And then 30% of the time, like you'll do a refinement on your search or you'll like, you'll do follow-ups or you'll get to what you want anyway. Yep. Chat from what we said is almost the exact opposite where people are much more expressive of their needs and much more expressive of their desires. And the shape of that data and the shape of the product mm -hmm. and everything that comes out of it is actually going to be think, quite different than even what Google has. And that is proof. No one I think yeah. has good quality, real mm -hmm. chat data for having a conversation like a, around a topic like you would with a friend. Yeah. Do you think that people want to be expressive to entities that don't reward them for that? You have to be rewarded. <laughs> my my yeah. example comes from my earliest interactions with any sort of chatbots were often very curious and open-ended. Yeah. And a, a desire to find the boundaries of their ability to simulate human behavior, simulate chat behavior. And I almost inevitably converge on use cases which are really mundane. Yeah. Like the way that I use Google Assistant right now is like almost exclusively to set timers and play Spotify. Yeah. 
when I first encountered Google Assistant, I approached it with more curiosity and open-endedness. I think I asked it about its emotions, asked it whether, like, for advice about things. I don't do any of that anymore. Yeah. And I wonder whether we're going through, like, a bubble of thinking that these technologies are in some way different, but really, they're not. Yeah. And, like, we might all end up disappointed by that. I think that's a risk. My experience thus far, and this is the optimist startup founder who's headlong into it, is that we have crossed the Rubicon. And it is not that like these problems are solved, but it is that we have the tools in place to be able to create completely new experiences that break out from what you felt and I felt, and we all felt with Siri and with Google Assistant and stuff like that. We have to deliver on that. Like, I think that like you have to deliver on that. And we talked about this and I like what I think about and what is the most stressful thing is like execution is the most important thing. Execution is the most important thing. And how do you simultaneously execute and building out a delightful, magical product while you're still flying the plane <laughs> at the same time and you need people to use it and you need to go to market and you need investors to believe in it. You need users to believe in it. You need to build faith in it along the way. I think that is like a, a real challenge, but I think the pieces are there to, to overcome it. You can disagree on specifics, but I haven't. Yeah, I don't know if I have a grounded disagreement other than the fact there's like some criticism I think of this potential comes from previous in this conversation, just yeah. looking at how things get bland. Yeah. And also I think looking at my own engagement with these things is also followed a wave. It was like uh, an expansive exploratory process and increasingly has become very practical. Yeah. I also want to counterweight that opinion with the observation that companies like Replica or Replicant, I can't remember Replica. the name, Replica, yeah. which is produced basically AI romantic partners. Yeah went through this massive wave of interest, but I think they maybe have just discontinued a product or something like that. There was some controversial news recently. Yeah, the we were talking saying this before, like the most popular use case that I've seen from like data for chatbots is around like adult and intimate interactions in NSFW. Like the data points that say that is if you look at searches and queries where like what are people actually looking proactively for a chatbot? Generally, it's that, uh, which is not all that surprising. Like the top search term on YouTube is like porn. The second one is prawn. The same thing for Google. Like the, like adult content leads innovation oftentimes. <laughs> <laughs> and so Replica, that was a huge use case for them. And like they turned off like the explicit, I think, part of the capability. And I think the same thing was true for, there was another startup that was like doing something similar where they also had the same disabling capability. I feel like there's a giant theory all around how this stuff will play out. And I like, I don't think the Google Assistant generic bland, even if you inject personality, but like your assistant now has personality to it. I don't think that's like the starting place for the, for interactions with, with AI and for interactions with AI agents. It's very hard for me to make that leap beyond the people in tech who are like very interested in playing with these things and like the leading edge, but for the average day person where you say, oh, this is actually like a thing that will be used by people you and I know that are in different fields than tech, so to speak. And I think the likely entry point for those experiences, probably more like productivity, utility, more like we're actually getting value out of it. That or the very extreme end where you can get into more of the like fun slash like emotional empathetic type of things. And that's like talk therapy, those and some other fun experiences, I think are like ends of the spectrum where it'll start and then it'll be who's fastest to converge to complete the rest of it. I did want to follow up on what you were saying about Google's moat 
And then what Neva was trying to do, certainly one challenge that you listed for Google is that, oh, they're just the incumbent and have innovators dilemma. And it seems like Neva probably shouldn't have that since they're yeah. early enough stage. What's up with Neva? Are they gonna are they gonna win? What's their strategy? How's it going? <laughs> I'm no longer there, so I can only say what sure. I as yeah, yeah, of course. know as like an outside observer. Oh. No, they absolutely have a ton of opportunity in front of them, and I'm really excited oh. for that team. They just launched. I'll give them a hype for their own product. Oh. They just launched an app called Gist, which has AI basically baked in throughout mm -hmm. it. It takes. Yeah a query and then on the fly assembles an Instagram like story mm -hmm. that summarizes the, that topic or whatever you're looking yeah. for as an example. And I think one of the real advantages that they have is that they have a corpus of the web. They have that crawl. Yep. They're an incredibly strong team. So they have annotations and references mm -hmm. and stuff on it to know what that crawl is about. Mm -hmm. They have the power of AI. I think a lot of the challenge for them will be around the product and positioning and like, how do you find the entry point and how do you find the wedge and what is the experience that wins and what is the audience and product that actually gets you there? And I think that's it. Like from the outset, that's the journey that we were on. And that was the journey I would say like Neva was on was like, how do you find that? And it was like an incredibly hard thing. <laughs> like yeah. we all came in, like everyone would just be like, yeah. this is a really hard problem. This is a very hard problem. But <laughs> yeah. It was baked in, observing these like larger trends that the modality of search in Google was becoming outdated, that the business model was undermining the user experience and that technology was providing tailwinds to try and provide something new and different. Getting, building up to there is not fast or easy. Building out your own crawl thing to go get the internet is not yeah. an easy feat, but at this point in time, they have all of those tools at their disposal. And I think it's just blue skies in front of them to take advantage of it. And how's Mebo going to find a wedge? We're in the same bucket, but less. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> with scrap yeah. and hustle and yeah. with connecting with our users yeah. and building through empathy, I would say. No, I, like in practice, like I said, there's two things I think about every day. Number one is how do we iterate and build a high quality product experience? And I think the path to that is mostly getting data as much as possible and through revs to understand how yep. can we create the most delightful chats and conversations possible. Yep. And I think number two is how do we bridge the gap while we're building that to get people on and trying it and using it who are mm -hmm. partners to us and believe in the vision along the way yeah. that allow us to build up to there. And those are the two things that I think about most. And then everything else yeah. is just an input of like, how do you make that possible? Avi, we like to finish our interviews with a recommendation. Yeah. So it could be a movie, a book, a poem. It's just something that you would like to share that's been like on a top of mind for you recently. This is not a great recommendation. I'm sorry, but it's, it is both connected to what we've talked about and what you said before. I find a ton of inspiration from Westworld. From Westworld season one and season two, just only watch those and assume that the rest is un unnecessary. I would say if you haven't seen it and you're interested in this area, I think they did a wonderful job exploring the topics that we've talked about. And the reason that is, is that they very much explored what does AI look like in a diverse world without a monolith? And they do that simultaneously and they, it gets worse like as they go on because they have this like Rehoboam, like they have this like central AI, which is like the overall seeing like singularity. But at the end of the day, what they're taking is that you have consciousness through individual, unique, diverse representations of AI. 
Like every, it's like a chatbot, but every person is, there's no singularity. There is no, oh, John and Brian and Avi, we're all using the same AI model like behind the scenes. And I think their exploration of that and how the second and order and third order side effects of that in many ways mm -hmm. is wonderful, is wonderful. Yeah. And I think it very much like to me connects with what I find inspiring about the technology and where we're at more than anything. Cool. Thanks for being part of Pioneer Park. Yeah, thank you for having me. This was a wonderful experience. Hopefully I didn't talk your ear off too much and it was somewhat interesting. Just the right <laughs> amount. Perfect. Right. Thank you.